in case anyone is joining the YouTube link late, that today's sermon uh, is going to include some mature content that relates to gender, sex, and sexuality. So if you have kids and you don't want them to hear that, um, now is a good time to step out or to hit pause. Uh, Fun fact, today is 7-Eleven. So if you want to get a Slurpee, you can go to any 7-Eleven location and get a free Slurpee which is maybe a good alternative if you feel like the kids aren't quite ready for a message like this. I wish I had one of those, uh, those like warnings they used to show before R-rated previews just to give the full context of like, hey, just so you know, we're going to talk about some things that are mature. But as was said, not crass. I'm not going to be up here being crude or making jokes that are inappropriate. But we're just talking about stuff that, that is maybe a bit more mature and, and adult. Um, but, but that is our reality today. Um, We live in a Romans 1 world. People reject God, and sin is rampant, and there are consequences. So to kick off our message tonight, I want to start by just reading Romans 1, 24 to 32. It says this, starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what not ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those those who do such things deserve death, not only they continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So as I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking examples of how these verses are applying themselves and manifesting themselves in our current time. And the purpose of these, this kind of mini-sermon series is not to point the finger and say, look at them or look at those sinners or even look at those issues, but the purpose of this is for Romans 2 to apply to us as well, that God's kindness would lead all of us to a greater repentance. And even in the context of a Romans 1 world where people reject God and the consequences are evident, as believers, we're still called to love our neighbors. And loving our neighbors means understanding how sin affects all of us. So for those of us in the room who are believers, we can apply the gospel, Romans 1.16, like a doctor would apply ointment to a wound, understand how the person is broken, and then apply the gospel appropriately. Like I said, we live in a Romans 1 world, and verse 24 of what I just read talks about how people degrade their bodies and the degrading of the body leads into other sins that are evident in the verses that follow. But today, people's brokenness and people's sin isn't always so evident. 
I'll tell you about a story about a friend of mine named, uh, I'm going to change this person's name, but we'll call this person Ben. I remember going on a church retreat a few years ago. It was a whole group of churches that came together, and we met at a retreat center. So these are oftentimes in kind of rural areas. It was a, a group of cabins up in the woods, and there were cabins for men and cabins for women. And I knew most of the men from the group of churches, but I remember meeting this new guy who we'll call Ben, and Ben seemed like a really nice guy. I interacted with him just like I interacted with everybody else. I remember one time in particular, I got to pray with Ben after one of the, I think it was the worship sets, and I went on with my life after the retreat and thought nothing of it, just thought I was at a retreat around a bunch of guys and met another nice guy named Ben. But a few weeks later, I found out that Ben was not born Ben. Ben was born a biological female and presented as a male, and I didn't even notice. Ben looked like a normal 20-something-year-old guy and passed as a man, so much so that Ben slept in cabins with other men. Ben was around other, probably 30 or 40 other guys where there were showers with stalls and people were changing clothes and carrying on like the weekend was happening, like nothing was wrong. And I don't think anyone else noticed either. Ben was there, and Ben was the first time I can remember meeting a transgender person. This was probably in 2015 or 2014. And I'll define that term transgender later in the message. But maybe some of you were like me, and the term transgender five to 10 years ago seemed like it was something that was way on the fringes of progressive society and only showed up in really progressive context. But now you look up, and it's 2021, and you see people introducing themselves. And when they introduce themselves, they may tell you, or you'll see it in their email signatures or in their, on their business cards, they'll put what pronouns they go by he, him, his, or she, her, hers, or they, them, and theirs. Or you see issues on the news, like which bathrooms people are using, depending on their gender identity. Or you see prominent people like the Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levin, hold office as a transgender woman. Maybe it seems like the issue is a bit closer to home now in 2021 than it was five or 10 years ago. And I say the word issue, but I probably shouldn't use the word issue because the purpose of this sermon and the next few sermons is not to point the finger at those people or those issues, because at the end of the day, the transgender conversation comes down to people. People like you and me, and people like Ben. I want to ask you to put yourself in my shoes a few years ago. You meet Ben at a church event. You find out Ben was born female, but currently presents as male. And Ben asks you this question. I was born a female, but I feel like a man on the inside, and I have ever since I can remember. According to the Bible, which one determines who I am and why? Could you answer that question with compassion and clarity? When talking to a transgender person, you may find that the zinger one-liners that you see on social media don't actually help. Uh, some of you may remember the movie Coming to America, the barbershop scene where Eddie Murphy is playing all the different roles, and they're talking about Muhammad Ali when he transitioned from Cassius Clay, changing his name to Muhammad Ali. And one of the barbers says the famous line, his mama named him Clay, I'ma call him Clay. Telling a transgender person that and moving on is probably not gonna solve the issues that they're dealing with. Again, the, the question that I'm, I'm hoping we can answer today is being able to answer a person who says, I was born a woman, but I feel like a man on the inside, and I always have. According to the Bible, which one determines who I am and why? Now, the which one here, just so I'm clear on how I'm defining the question, is the which one that people are deciding between is 
Do I go with what my body says, the, the, the physical, biological makeup that I have, or do I go with what my mind says or how I feel about myself? And there are deeper questions that maybe run behind why people struggle with this. Because, for example, some people are born with brown hair, but then they feel like changing it to blonde, so they change it to blonde, and no one seems to bat an eye. Or maybe a more serious example, some people are change their bodies for cosmetic reasons. People are born with hair, and then they lose it, and they get hair plugs. And there seems to be not an issue behind that. Or people get muscle implants, more serious cosmetic surgeries. People alter their bodies sometimes to fit what they feel like their mind wants. And that seems to be generally accepted. So for the person who says, I was born a certain sex, but I want to change, why should we draw the line there? Or should we draw the line there? Because what people like Ben will often tell you is, I felt like this ever since I can remember. Did God create me with these desires? And if they're godly desires, should I just follow them? I deal with a lot of anxiety and depression when I think about my gender. Does God want me to suffer like this? And should I transition in order to alleviate my suffering? I just want to be happy. And even if you look at the statistics, this is unfortunately true, and people will say this, I've considered suicide if I can't resolve this issue. There was a New York Times article where a transgender woman who was about to undergo surgery in order to transition from man to woman, this person's name is Andrea Chu. Andrea Chu said before uh, they were about to undergo surgery that dysphoria, gender dysphoria, and gender dysphoria is a term we'll define in a minute, but Andrea Chu said gender dysphoria feels like being unable to get warm no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. So before we try to answer the people we may know who this issue affects, people like Ben or people like Andrea Chu, we need to try to define some terms so we can communicate effectively. The first term we have to define is sex. This may seem obvious to some of us, but sex is a biological reality, your biological status as male or female, and it's assigned at birth. Sex is determined by things like your chromosomes, XX for women, XY for men, and also your physical anatomy. All of us were in elementary school health class. We know that men have certain reproductive organs and women have other reproductive organs. So that's a pretty simple one. Sex is the biological reality of male or female. But then you have gender, and this one is a bit trickier to define. Gender, according to the American Psychological Association, refers to the roles, behaviors, activities, and attributes associated with one's sex. And gender is oftentimes, I'm adding this, gender is oftentimes, but not exclusively, influenced by one's culture. There are biblical gender roles. Now, a gender role is how someone expresses themselves or the expectations that someone has related to their gender. And a gender identity is a term used to express how someone expresses themselves in relation to their sex. Now, what most of our discussion today is going to focus on is people who experience gender dysphoria, either related to their gender in general, their gender identity, or their gender role. Uh, Gender dysphoria is a term, and this is a psychological diagnosis. Um, it is something that the medical community recognizes as a legitimate thing that people struggle with. Gender dysphoria is when someone experiences an incongruence or a tension between their gender identity or their gender role and their biological sex. So a simple example of this is a girl maybe who feels more at home playing with the boys. This is not as culturally acceptable now, but when I grew up, we used to call these people tomboys. A girl who likes to play in the mud, likes to play sports, likes to wrestle, likes to do things that are typically associated with men. 
Someone may experience gender dysphoria if they feel like that gender role does not fit their biological sex. Another example of gender dysphoria could be a boy who feels more at home playing with the girls. He likes to talk about his feelings and play dress up. This would be someone, again, who may experience gender dysphoria related to their gender role because they don't feel like the things they do as a boy align with their biological sex. Again, another example we could think of is, is someone who looks, this could be a boy or a girl, someone who looks at their sex-specific anatomy and just feels like it shouldn't exist. So they try to cover it up with clothes or they try to pretend it doesn't, uh, it's not there or they feel like they should be removed. That would be someone who has gender dysphoria related to their gender identity. Gender dysphoria is often, but not always, the reason people identify as transgender. Now for category's sake, there are people who have what are called intersex conditions. Intersex conditions happen when someone's chromosomes uh, are either male, uh, male or female, but they may have partially developed anatomy or partially developed attributes of the opposite sex. People estimate, uh, depending on how you classify it, intersex conditions happen every one in 1,500 births. And some people have intersex conditions, they don't even know it because it's very mild. Other people have intersex conditions and it's very obvious at birth and it's it requires medical attention. But again, I'm not talking about intersex people today, we're talking about people who experience gender dysphoria. People who are born unquestionably male or unquestionably female and they want to know, I was born a woman, or we could say I was born a man. I was born a woman and I feel like a man on the inside and I always have. According to the Bible, which one determines who I am and why? Now, to answer this question, we could certainly jump back to Romans 1 and read a verse like I just read earlier and say, look, you're a sinner, you know God exists, but you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and here are the results. End of discussion. That's not wrong per se, but there are assumptions that a lot of Paul's readers had when they read Romans 1 that people today don't always have. So if you read someone a verse in Romans 1, like Romans 1, 18 through 20, and say, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. If you read a verse like that, it may be helpful to back up a bit for context's sake. Verse 20 says, for since the creation, it may be helpful to ground the conversation if you're talking to someone with the idea of God as creator, because that's not something people today always think of or are aware of. In fact, if you read the American Psychological Association's definition of sex, they say sex is assigned at birth. As Christians, Maybe we want to unpack that assumption just a bit, because biological sex, according to the Bible, runs deeper than what a doctor may observe when a child is born. Now, to do that, what we need to do is jump back from Romans 1 to Genesis 1. So, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, from the beginning, before sin enters the picture, the idea of the categories of male and female are godly ideas, divinely transcendent ideas. This is not something that a doctor just observes at birth. The categories of male and female are created and divinely inspired to remind us of God's image. And male and female people were created with physical bodies that validate their maleness or their femaleness. 
God's grace comes to us with a body. Now, what's interesting here is if you look through Genesis, you move ahead to Genesis 2 and 3, you'll see that sin enters the picture. A lot of us know the the narrative here. Mankind rebels against God. And there are a few phrases that are relevant to unpack the discussion today related to people who experience gender dysphoria. The first one is Genesis 2.25. This is an observation before sin has entered the picture. In Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In other words, they were comfortable in their biological male and female bodies. But after they rebel against God, God comes looking for them. And Adam says to God, when God's looking for him, he says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God says back to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So once sin enters the picture, shame enters the picture. And we can observe now that people don't feel at home in their God-given male or female bodies. I think the reverberation from that event can still be felt today. I read that quote earlier from Andrea Chu, the transgender woman who was about to undergo surgery to transition from a man to a woman. And what's particularly interesting is that Andrea Chu said, dysphoria, gender dysphoria, feels like being unable to get warm, no matter how many layers you put on. Anyone know what God does to Adam and Eve after he pronounces all the curses of sin in Genesis 3? He gives them garments, garments of skin to cover their sin and to cover their shame. He gives them garments to give them the warmth that I think that Andrea is looking for. So for people who experience gender dysphoria and say, I feel like I wasn't born in the right body and I I have this deep sense of unsettledness, it feels like being unable to get warm, We could say to people like that, you're probably not the first, and you probably won't be the last. Now, if we fast forward through the Bible, through the Old Testament, we'll see that our bodies are still affected by sin, but also described as being divinely inspired and knit together by God. Psalm 139, for you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, earlier I mentioned um, other things people do to alter their bodies. People dye their hair, or people get hair plugs, or people go through cosmetic surgeries. Uh, I think the conversation on that is probably a sermon in and of itself. But the reality that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, it's possible that even some of the small things we do to our body could be rebelling against the truth that we see here, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's possible that makeup or dyeing our hair, or this is big for men, when it goes gray, changing it and making it a color we feel like it should be, it's possible that we're bucking against the reality that God created our bodies with intention, even in small ways for people who don't experience gender dysphoria. Psalm 8 is another one we should consider. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So the the broad kind of sweeping observation we can make about the Old Testament is that our bodies are affected by sin, but they're still knit together, divinely inspired by God to testify to his glory, even with the presence of sin. Grace still comes with a body. Now in the New Testament, we flip ahead. You know the promise in Genesis that God will send a Messiah to crest the head of the snake. We have Jesus come on the scene. And Jesus comes on the scene in a physical body, because again, grace comes with a body. 
The word became flesh, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What that means is that Jesus not only existed in a body, but during his earthly ministry, Jesus affirmed the truth about our bodies with grace and with compassion, with compassion and clarity. Jesus said this when answering a Pharisee in Mark 10, 6 through 9. But at the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, a brief aside here, this is an example of a biblical gender role, a role that God has ordained from the beginning that applies particularly to men and women across time and across culture. What God intended from the beginning is what Jesus affirmed while he was here on earth. From the beginning, God created biological male and female expressed through our physical bodies. And in fact, Jesus said, we should be afraid of those who destroy the body. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot fear the soul, kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both, both soul and body in hell. This passage reminds me of an interview I heard uh, with a woman named Daisy Shadra. Daisy was born a woman, dealt with really severe gender dysphoria, and then transitioned to a man, and then regretted the decision and transitioned back to a woman. And her words stuck with me. This is a, a, a direct quotation. Daisy said, transitioning is really, really, really hard on the body. Now, Daisy's not a, not a believer in any way that she identifies, but I think common grace has allowed her to observe a truth. There are a lot of ancient philosophies that taught that your soul, your inner sense of self is really what matters. That's what's gonna live on into all of eternity. And so we can discard and not worry about our bodies because our inner sense, our soul, is what's actually going to carry on. And we can disregard our bodies because they're temporary. Jesus says the opposite. And I think Daisy recognized this and affirmed it as well, that we should be afraid of those who destroy the body. Any idea that our bodies are just something to escape, something to destroy, something that will just pass away and be totally discarded, Jesus says, be afraid. Be afraid of those who can destroy both your body and your soul. Now, with this context in mind, this only magnifies what Jesus does on the cross for us because he has his body broken. He has his body humiliated and stripped naked and punished for our sins, punished for our rebellion. But even more than that, if you read the resurrection accounts, note the description of Jesus. What does he rise in? He's not a ghost. He's not a disembodied spirit. He's got a body, a body that can eat fish, which is great because I like the idea of being able to eat fish for all of eternity as someone who enjoys seafood. Luke 24, 36 through 43. Jesus says this, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet. It is I, myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said them, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. So Jesus appears after the resurrection to his disciples in a body what we would call theologically a glorified body, one free from the sin and brokenness that he dealt with in the world and free from the malice and, and sin and all the Ten Commandments that were broken when he was put on the cross. But the glorified body is not just something that Jesus experiences. 
Paul explains that for those of us who trust him, we will also receive this glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44, Paul says, so it, is, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So there's this paradox that Paul's getting at. The body on earth, while still knit together by God, made in the image of God, is perishable, dishonorable, weak. And we can recognize that. Our bodies, as we get older, they get harder to deal with. A friend of mine just texted me, tore his hamstring, playing sports. And I said, welcome to your 30s. This is not, you're not 15, you're not 20. Your body's perishable. It's going to get older. It's going to get harder. Our bodies here are perishable, dishonorable, and weak. The glorified body, though, the body we'll get to enjoy for all of creation if we've trusted Jesus, glorious, powerful, raised as a spiritual, we could call theologically, categorically, a glorified body. Paul gives a more direct promise in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So the new creation, or what you may also hear called heaven, will not be a place where we just float around as disembodied spirits and play harps and jump from cloud to cloud. We'll have bodies, and we'll experience them the way we were meant to. Not because we get what our inner sense of self desired, but because our bodies will be united to Jesus, what we were ultimately created for. So to the person who asked, I was born a woman, but I feel like a man on the inside, and I always have, according to the Bible, which one determines who I am and why? We would say, as Christians, the body. Because biblically speaking, our bodies, though sinful, are still foundational reflections of God's glory, and God's grace comes with a body. But if we skip everything I just said, and we just jump straight to Romans 1 and say, well, you're experiencing this because you're a sinner, and just end the conversation there, we miss the opportunity to unpack what I would consider to be a more holistic view of what God's intended purpose was for male and female. And when I say holistic, what I mean is that there are broad categories that we can use to describe the arc of the story of Scripture. And anytime we want to study something, we should look at it through the four categories that make up what I would call a holistic view of something in Scripture. Some of you have heard these categories before. Creation, fall, or we could say sin, redemption, and recreation. So what I just attempted to do was walk through holistically how our bodies as male and female function in each of those categories. We can observe uh, in the beginning in creation, God created us as male and female. That was God's intention from the beginning in Genesis. And then we read in the fall or the sin narrative how shame and discomfort is right there as soon as we sin. But even through the Old Testament, in the presence of sin, our bodies are still divinely inspired, knit together by God. And then in redemption, our bodies are redeemed by Christ. And while he's here with grace and truth, Jesus affirms God's design from the beginning of male and female. And then Jesus lives perfectly and has his body broken so that we could be reconciled to God. And after that, we have redemption or recreation. Those of us who trust Jesus receive glorified bodies, not just spirits. We don't become ghosts, but we're free of sin, and we get to joy, enjoy our bodies the way they were intended to be enjoyed. That's a different narrative. Creation, fall, 
redemption, recreation, than just running straight to Romans 1 and talking about sin. The Bible has a comprehensive story for people who experience gender dysphoria, more than just saying, you're a sinner and you reject God. Now, if you're trying to answer that question I just raised, and you don't have 15 or so minutes, because I think that was about 15 minutes, that I just spent unpacking the whole creation, fall, redemption, recreation narrative, and you want a more short, pointed way to talk about what God intends for male and female, I actually think there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul uses. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's actually addressing sexual immorality, which is somewhat but not directly related to what we're talking about today. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There are similar categories here at work in this verse. First, starting with creation. The idea that our bodies are created to be temples of the Holy Spirit. God's glory is expressed through our bodies. Our biological sex, then, is not something that's determined by a doctor at birth. It's a gift from God, because we are not our own. Fallen redemption falls into the, just the, the simple phrase that you were bought with a price. We've been studying Romans, and a lot of you know that Romans has been talking about in the first three chapters how both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Not just that all people, that's what Jews and Greeks would be referred to at the time, but not just all, all people are sin, uh, or not all people are sinners, but that we're owned by sin, like a slave is owned by a master. But Jesus, Jesus purchased us. He bought us back with a sacrifice. He's our master now. His yoke is easy. His burden is light and we belong to him. We were bought with a price. Then comes, after the redemption, recreation. Therefore, because of all that, honor God with your body. So in light of creation, God creating us and intending for us to glorify him as male and female, in light of the fall, the fact that our bodies are corrupted but still redeemed by Jesus, then we can say to people, honor God with your physical body. Now, honoring God with your body is not just something that applies to people who experience gender dysphoria. Honor God with your body can apply to almost all Christians in, in many different ways. One quick example, 1 Timothy 4.8, exercise. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. So it's saying in 1 Timothy, bodily training is valuable, similar to the way that godliness or godly character is valuable, but because we'll receive new bodies, glorified bodies like I talked about, bodily training only holds value in this age. But it's still valuable. So just think about that when it comes to diet and exercise and taking care of your body and not discarding it and just treating it like something that's going to be buried one day and never seen again. Think about how you can steward well the grace that God has given you with your physical body. Take care of it. Honor it. Eat I'm not saying everyone should be vegan, but eat a little healthier. Go for a walk, go for a jog, do something that your body will enjoy. Another example is drunkenness. When the Bible talks about drunkenness, it also talks about gluttony right there next to it. Proverbs 23 and 20 and 21. Be not among the drunkards or the gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. So right next to each other in Proverbs, the Bible says ways we can honor our body. Avoid drunkenness, and also gluttony, gorging yourself on food when you don't need it. We could go on with examples like that of ways that we could individually honor God with our body. I think the Bible is full of them. But I want to speak to us not just as individual bodies, 
but as the body of Christ. Because all of us here, if we're believers, we're not just individuals, we're part of Christ's body, the physical manifestation of Jesus here on earth. And not everyone here may experience gender dysphoria, but everyone here who's a Christian is a part of Christ's body. And here's why that's important. People who experience gender dysphoria are promised a new body in heaven. But that's not the only hope they have. Being a part of the church should be an incentive for people who experience gender dysphoria. Oftentimes, people who are in a community of people who experience or struggle with the same thing, there's a lot of sin, but there's community. They care for each other. They show hospitality to each other. They call each other and check in with each other. And if people are hurting, they care. So if people who are experiencing gender dysphoria say, I want to follow Christ, I want to honor God with my body, and they decide to leave that behind, we can't just say to them, well, one day in heaven, everything's going to be all right. Here on earth, I think Jesus' words apply. This is Mark 10, 29-31. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So there are people who leave things behind, people who experience gender dysphoria and decide to honor God with their body and follow Jesus. It's possible that they're leaving behind a really strong community. But the words of Jesus apply here that in this lifetime, they should be receiving a hundredfold more brothers and sisters. And the brothers and sisters Jesus is talking about here, that's us. That's the body of Christ. That applies to everyone here, regardless of of whether or not you experience gender dysphoria. We, the body of Christ, should be prepared to welcome people and be an incentive for them if they struggle with gender dysphoria. So in light of that, I just want to unpack, kind of as we close here, two two exhortations for us, regardless of whether you struggle with gender dysphoria or not, just two exhortations that apply to all of us for how we can be those good brothers and sisters for people who are struggling or experience gender dysphoria. The first one is this. Unbiblical gender stereotypes do not honor God's design for male and female. In fact, if you read a lot of first-person accounts, oftentimes that makes it more difficult for people who struggle with gender dysphoria. So what I mean by that is, in the beginning, it says God created them male and female. But the Bible does not say that in the beginning, God created them male and female, and men should like blue, and women should like pink. That's an example of an unbiblical, but common. It's a cultural stereotype, right? You know, you buy blue for the boy baby and pink for the girl baby. Not saying it's wrong, but we can't treat that like it's biblical command. Our expectations for how someone lives faithfully as a man or as a woman need to be rooted in Scripture. I mentioned earlier that Jesus gave an example of a biblical gender role that applies to everyone across cultures and across times. That verse was from Mark 10, 6 through 9, where it says, But at the beginning, God created the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So essentially, what Jesus is saying is, Men, if you get married, this is how you express your maleness in marriage. Marry someone of the opposite sex. And the same applies to women. If you get married, this is how you express your femaleness in marriage. Marry someone of the opposite sex. And even though that is God's design and it applies across cultures and across times, we can't be overly narrow with our expectations for men and women. Paul was single. 
Jesus was single. And in fact, this is an interesting verse and a sermon of itself, but Paul said it might even be better to be single when it comes to devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. We won't unpack all of the ways you could interpret those verses, but I'm only putting that up to say that single people in the church should not be treated as second-class citizens. Single people should not miss out on experiencing family because they're a part of the family of God, Christ's body. Marriage is not a sign of maturity. It's not a sign of devotion to the Lord. If anything, you could argue biblically it's the opposite. And marriage does not make men more manly. It does not make women more feminine. Oftentimes what happens is you read accounts of people who deal with gender dysphoria, and it starts with them having either a non-stereotypical or a non-stereotypical life circumstance or a non-stereotypical desire. And the conclusion then is that maybe that means God wanted me to be the other gender. I should transition from male to female or from female to male. For example, there's a boy, I'm, I'm making up a, a hypothetical example here, but say a boy is known for his gentleness and he's into crafts. He's made fun of by the other boys because he's not being manly. He doesn't play sports. He doesn't wrestle in the mud. Does that mean he's trans or that he should transition and be a girl or that God intended for him to be a girl? If we hear that type of rhetoric as Christians, we should pump the brakes and say, well, hold on a second. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It doesn't qualify and say gentleness, but only for women. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit that applies equally to men and women. And a lot of us just read the book. Jesus, our Savior, is described as what? Gentle and lowly. So if a boy doesn't fit a stereotypical picture of what we think a man should be, perhaps it's our gender stereotypes that need to be challenged. And certainly if Jesus, who's described as gentle and lowly, doesn't fit our stereotype of what a man should be, our gender stereotypes need to be challenged and not Jesus, who's the perfect example of a man. Here's an interesting verse. You know the first person in the Bible who's described as filled with the Holy Spirit? It's in Exodus. Exodus 31, 1 through 5. This is a man, and it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel. This is a man, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs and work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. So if a young man is into arts and crafts, and not sports, that may not mean that he's feminine or that he's to transition to a woman. The first man in the Bible described as being filled with the Holy Spirit is in arts and crafts. So a boy who enjoys arts and crafts can experience and enjoy God and honor God with his physical body and be in arts and crafts. Or this, this applies equally, if not more so, to women as well. A woman who's interested in business ventures is not asserting her maleness, she could be asserting godliness. The Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs 31, 16. I'm behind. There we go. Proverbs 31, 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. In other words, she's in the business. That's described as a positive virtue for a woman. 
Or Lydia in the book of Acts. Lydia is a dealer of purple goods. This is a luxury item at the time, not something that you can buy or trade with cheaply. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So if a girl is into business ventures and buying and trading and, and, and money and numbers and all that, that's not a sign that she's being male. That could be a sign that she's being godly, like the Proverbs 31 woman or like Lydia. Another example we could point to, Romans 16, 1-2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give to her any help she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. So Paul, this is Paul writing. We'll, we'll get to this probably way in the future because it's in Romans 16. But Paul is commending Phoebe as a servant or a, a deacon. That's where we get our word deacon from. A deacon of the Lord. So first and foremost, if a woman is interested in serving and being involved in church ministry, that's not an exclusively male quality. But the background here is fascinating. So he's entrusting her as a servant of the Lord. And what he entrusts her with has benefited millions and millions of people. And the reason I say that is because many scholars believe that what's entrusted here is Paul is entrusting her with the actual letter that he wrote. They're not copying these at the time. There's no emails. Romans was a physical letter that someone wrote, and it had to be delivered. What Paul is entrusting Phoebe with is the physical copy of the letter that he wrote to deliver to Rome. Now, it's most likely that Phoebe is coming from either Corinth or Centria, and she's going to Rome. That's a 600-mile journey over land and sea. There are no first-class flights. There's no trains you can take where you can just chill and have a letter in a backpack. This is probably a long, possibly dangerous journey over land and sea. And Paul entrusts it to Phoebe and says, receive her in a way worthy of the Lord, his masterpiece of theology, something that's benefited millions and millions of people. So again, if a girl's into theology, likes to be outside, likes to be in the woods, likes to hike and do things that are seen as a little bit more dangerous, does that mean she's trans or she's expressing maleness? As Christians, we have to say, maybe not. It might be that she's a Phoebe. She's worthy to be received in a way worthy of the Lord's servant. The reason I'm stressing this is we have to be very careful with stereotypes. Male and female are categories that are created to glorify God. These are eternal, transcendent realities. They're not things that we can just say date back to the 1950s or their cultural stereotypes. These are expressions of God's glory, and they manifest themselves in many ways that oftentimes challenge what we're familiar with. And our expectations for men and women need to be rooted in the Bible and not in cultural stereotypes. The second and final exhortation I'll give to us um, as the body of Christ, how to be good brothers and sisters for those who may experience gender dysphoria. The first one is uh, be careful about non-biblical gender stereotypes. The second one is this. If you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. The spirit of this is, is when James says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I said earlier that the transgender issue is not so much an issue as it is about transgender people or people who experience gender dysphoria. And if you've met one of those people, you've met one of those people. What I'm cautioning us against is the jump to hasty conclusions about what we might see on the news or news stories we might read or podcasts we listen to or headlines we read. Not every person who experiences gender dysphoria is a man trying to sneak into the restroom and harass people. 
Not every person who experiences gender dysphoria is a man who wants to cheat and play women's sports so they can win a gold medal in the Olympics. People are people. People are created in God's image. People are created male and female to reflect his glory. And every person you meet, transgender or not, has a story that needs to be heard. And even the quote I read earlier from Daisy Chandra, the, the woman who transitioned from male and then detransitioned back to a woman, that's not a story we could just clobber people with and say, look, it worked out for her, you can do this too. People are people, and every person, whether they experience gender dysphoria or not, has a story that needs to be heard. And just like us, people that experience gender dysphoria need to know about Jesus. They need to know about his body, which was broken, so that we could honor him with our physical bodies. And the invitation for anyone who experiences gender dysphoria is the same invitation I'll invite us to in a few minutes, to partake in and to remember the broken body of Jesus, because grace comes with a body. We experience God's grace in our created bodies. That's from the beginning. Jesus is God's grace, and God's grace comes to us in Jesus in a physical body. And one day, we'll be with God forever if we've trusted Jesus in embodied physical bodies. But until then, what we can do to remember Jesus is to remember what Jesus did for us. Once sin entered the picture, the bodies that God intended for us were subjected to futility. That's a word used in Romans 8, hoping to one day be liberated by God. Like I said, Romans 8, another verse we'll probably study a bit later, says it like this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. For some people, that groaning, and that groaning is being experienced by all of creation, but for some people, that groaning means feeling like they weren't born in the right sexed body. They weren't born uh, male or female as they thought they should have been. But Jesus had his body broken so that we could honor him with ours, so that we could take part as the church and be the body of Christ to everyone, regardless of whether or not they experience gender dysphoria. And so that one day, we could be with Jesus forever and have our bodies renewed. Until then, as Romans 8 says, we wait with patience and we hope. And one of the ways we do that is what we're going to do now, taking the bread and taking the cup. As we experience this waiting to be renewed, my encouragement to us is let's all honor God with our bodies and let's be the body of Christ. There are uh, a few resources I'll recommend um, this is a kind of topical message, so this probably starts a conversation, and some of you may have more questions. You can certainly come and talk to me or talk to any of the elders. Um, some resources that I think are just really helpful if you wanted to dive into this further. The first is a book called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Preston is a believer. He's a Christian, and he actually um, spent the entire book basically answering the question that I asked us. So if I was born male or born female, but I feel like uh, I should be the opposite, which one determines who I am and why. He spends the entire book answering that question biblically, theologically, historically, and even scientifically. I think it's a really thorough, but not super long read. So that's uh, a helpful resource if you want to dive deeper into kind of talking about that question. 
This book is also very pastoral. The, the kind of last exhortation for us, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person, that also comes from Preston. I think he writes with clarity, but also with, with wise and, and compassionate wisdom for people who are on the ground just talking to and working with people. So that's one resource embodied by Preston Sprinkle. The second one is, I think the book all of the elders have read, we've passed it around, it's called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. It has one chapter on uh, gender dysphoria or transgender people. It touches on a lot of cultural hot buttons, so race and racism, uh, homosexuality. Um, there's a couple more I'm forgetting. I think it also touches on sanctity of life. But that's a, a good book, not only for the transgender chapter, but just for her general approach in dealing with cultural issues from the perspective of the Bible in ways that are, again, compassionate, but also clear on what the Bible says. So Secular Cream, I'm Rebecca McLaughlin. Last one here, this is the American Psychological Association's website. It has a real kind of one-pager on LGBTQ and in that LGBT, the T is transgender. So I'm not recommending this because I'm endorsing everything it's saying or the worldview it comes from because the APA is a non-Christian organization. But this is more just if you want to understand the terms and the definitions behind those terms, a helpful place to go and read about them. The term biological sex, for example, sex is assigned at birth, that's directly on the APA's website. So if you're wanting to understand the root of a lot of where these definitions are coming from, that's a, a helpful resource to go to and just read, um, but read with discernment, but read to understand the definitions. So those are some helpful resources. Like I said, you can also, if you have questions, talk to me or talk to any of the elders. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then we're going to um, take communion together and worship. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that um, we can recognize and see and feel and touch your grace. People saw and felt and touched Jesus. He was, he was there. He was among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Experienced the temptations that we experienced was tempted in every way but without sin and had his body broken so that we could be reconciled to you. Help us, Lord, to honor you with our bodies, to put aside all the sin that tries to tell us that our bodies are useless or that our bodies are, are not in the image of God, that they're disgraceful. Help us to honor our bodies, Lord. Help us to honor the bodies of those around us, to treat them with dignity, respect, and to present to them the same thing that we're about to partake ourselves, to present in uh, verbal or, or deed or whatever form, God, the broken body of Jesus, the same sacrifice that he made for us. Help us to remind others of, of, uh, around us that Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. Grace did come in a body and, and made it possible for all of us to worship God, to enjoy creation, to be a part of reality as an embodied person. Lord, help us to, to put aside uh, anything right now that's going to prevent us from remembering with thankfulness the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. Help us to carry around that resurrection power in our bodies by the power of the Holy Spirit to present people with hope, with grace, with compassion, and also present clarity on how you've spoken and how you've given us not just grace, but also truth. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.